Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. Uh, you know me well enough at this point. We've been together for a little over two years now. You know me well enough that when I have an opinion about a, a pop song, I don't hold back on it. In fact, I tell you about it from the pulpit. And uh, today I'm going to go after some low-hanging fruit, okay? Um, so so this isn't, it's not particularly brave of me to get up here and tell you that the song Imagine by John Lennon is garbage. <laughs> and uh, I don't care who knows my opinion of it. I wish this song would go away and die. Uh, you may say I'm a dreamer about that, but I'm not the only one. <laughs> and in fact, the British author Francis Spufford, uh, a Christian whose writing I admire, um, agrees with me on this. Here's an excerpt from his book, Unapolog- it's called Unapologetic. It's a great book, I recommend it to you. And here's what he said about this song. For a piece of famous fluffiness, consider the teased and quaffed nylon monument that is imagined. Surely the My Little Pony of philosophical statements. John and Yoko, all in white. John at the white piano. John drifting through the white rooms of a white mansion, all while sweet drivel flows. And the song, one of the song's most unrealistic pretenses and its vision for a peaceful world, um, is this idea of a unified people. Here's what the song says, right? Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living a life in peace. You you know the song. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. The world will be as one. And in our own time, there is a secular vision that exists for the world being as one. I mean, the idea is that if the world comes together under one banner with one set of goals, if we're all working towards good things, then we'll have peace and harmony and um, prosperity. But the issue, the great sort of thing that needs to be fixed is that we're not all one. And this is what Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, um, which none of you have, I know, but you know, the CEO of the Facebook social media site, um, he believes that his platform can accomplish this. He talks about building a global community, breaking down barriers, bringing people together, and to unite them for uh, the purpose of mutually connected peace. And uh, the scriptures, the Bible has something remarkable to say to John Lennon and Mark Zuckerberg. It's rough news for the both of them, because what we read today in Gospel According to Genesis, in the book of Genesis, in our sermon series, is that it's been done. We tried it before. The world unified under one common purpose, one common language, the vision of a peaceful utopia. Um, Well, that's not what happened when the whole world got together. And so as we continue along uh, in the gospel according to Genesis, today we're in Genesis chapter 11, which is the story of the Tower of Babel. And like a lot of stories in Genesis, this is a story that has fame. And the fame undercuts I think the profundity of a very real text has a lot to say about our own time. And that's my hope today. I want to cut through some of the familiarity and get at the profundity of what this text is actually saying, while also um, letting you see that there is a just and merciful God at the core of this um, 
Old Testament reading. To those of you with keen memories and keen eyes, you'll know that um, we last week we're in Genesis 9, and this week we skipped Genesis 11. You know, I've got nothing up my sleeve, I'm not hiding anything, right? I'm going to tell you what Genesis 10 is. Genesis 10 is an Old Testament genealogy uh, passage. And I really just didn't want to put Ellie through the task of having to read all of those ites and, and sons of and sons of, that sort of thing. And I didn't want to put you through the torture of listening to it, so we skipped it. Well, but I'll fill you in, right? Uh, we talked about Noah and the flood. We spent three weeks looking at the rain and the ark and coming out on the other side. Then we looked at how Noah um, sort of had this trauma and coped with it by drinking, and he got drunk. And then we, we got three sons of Noah. Genesis 10 wants us to see that the three sons of Noah eventually become the lineage through which a number of important Old Testament uh, nations, an important number of world nations, not just Old Testament nations, come together. And so in Genesis chapter 10, we see uh, nations like Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, they develop. And these nations, the text tells us, have all of their own cultures, their own languages. And so the question then is, well, how do we get this? We have three sons. They clearly all speak the same language. They come from the same family. How do we go from that to like all of these different regions and languages? The answer is in Genesis chapter 11. And that's where we are today. We're going to look at that passage, the story of the Tower of Babel. And here's how the story goes. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east... They found a plain in the land of Shinar, or Shinar, however you want to pronounce that, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Shinar, for all you geography buffs out there, this is one of the names the Old Testament gives for the region of Mesopotamia. So you're looking at Tigris, Euphrates, rivers, that region. Um, it's also the region that's called Babylon. So we actually have a geographic location for the Tower of Babel. Um, it's not just sort of figurative and a sort of a, a, a story that's a metaphysical, you know, it's not, it's not a myth, it's not a, it's not a fable. They, it says that the Tower of Babel actually was built in the region of Mesopotamia. Um, so this is taking place in the Middle East, and the original intent of, of this tower, the original intent of the human beings was that we wouldn't be separated by language, we wouldn't be separated by culture, that we wouldn't be so dispersed that we um, lost track of one another. The original vision for this tower, this great city, was that we would be one big family, we would work together, we would live in harmony, and they wanted one big city with a tower and its top would be so high it went up to the heavens. They wanted to make a name for themselves, lest they be dispersed over the earth. And that's simple enough, isn't it? Right? Humanity is growing and dividing and spreading out geographically. Let's create a central hub for humanity to call home. You can bring your crops here. You can bring a merchant here. You can sell your things here. Um, all good things if you're Mark Zuckerberg or John Lennon. Imagine all the people living in harmony. But trouble is brewing. And you can see it in the reading here. A tower with its top to the heavens, making a name for humanity. You'll remember back at the beginning of our Genesis series that our original diagnosis of the Adam and Eve problem was not just that they were foodies looking for good fruit to try. That the forbidden fruit uh, was not just sort of a moment of, 
oh, I'm hungry, I need something to eat. It was a willful act, an attempt to usurp God. To take God and say, we want to be like you. We're going to be your peers. We're going to, you created us, but that's not good enough. We want to be like you. And so now we see this same kind of, of impulse playing itself out um, in a different way. Because human beings have got bricks and mortar now. But the same impulse behind Adam and Eve eating of the fruit is here behind this Tower of Babel project. The primordial humans of the Tower of Babel, they, they, they wanted to build a, a tower to become equal to, if not to eventually usurp God, the God of the universe. How does God respond to all this? Let's check in. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. These are stark words from God because they reflect um, it's a reflection of language we're familiar with hearing in the year 2020. Let's all come together. Let's work together. Let's be one. Let's work towards a common goal. And God says this. He says, look, the people are building the city, the tower. They're one. They have one language. Um, nothing is impossible for them. It's, it's, it's the Lenins and the Zuckerbergs. That's what they want. And God says, actually, this is not a good thing. This is not a good thing. I want to introduce you to a concept that... Um, it's something that is in the air right now, and it's something that the theologians have been talking about for one time or another under uh, different names. But I want to I want to address it because it addresses our current time, it addresses our reading, and I think it's helpful language. Um, when human beings get together, um, they can sin in unique and different ways than they can when they're just by themselves. Okay, uh, that's something that we've noticed throughout history. It's something we've noticed in Scripture. Um, one person doesn't have the resources, the time, and the money to build a tower to heaven. It takes thousands of people to work on this project to make a tower to heaven. Thousands of people. You've got your bricklayers, and you've got your mortar makers, and you've got your brick makers, and they have to give them to the masons to lay them down. And then you need architects, and you need construction foremen to manage everything. And then you need someone to keep the books, and then you need someone to, to make food to feed the workers so that they're all there. And then you need the, the safety inspectors and the OSHA staff to make sure everyone's treated right. And then you need the interior designers, because if you're going to make a tower to heaven, it's got to look good. And jo jokes aside, right, the Tower of Babel represents something new and different than Adam and Eve's forbidden fruit, or Cain and Abel's, um, Cain's jealousy of his brother Abel. It represents that uh, a sort of teamwork that makes a bad dream work. That's what it represents. There are whole communities of people can come together and they can do things apart from God's will that a single individual person cannot pull off for themselves. And you see this pattern playing throughout Scripture where God doesn't just bring judgment on an individual person, but on a whole collective group. So the Bible says that, that, that maybe not everyone in Israel is sort of a, a worshiping a bad God and doing all the worst things, and maybe they're doing it at different levels, but God says, look, the whole thing is messed up. The whole thing. That everyone has come together and they're doing this thing and they've built the thing, that it, it's not just enough to sort of be an individual person to break it all down. You can't. Everything's so enmeshed together, it's got to be completely torn apart. And so what does God do? Uh, God brings in Assyria uh, to conquer the nation of Israel. 
But then God brings in Babylon to conquer the Assyrians and then the other half of Israel. And then God brings in the Persians to conquer the Babylonians. And, and as I'm telling you this, like if those names are going in one ear and out the other, I understand. I get it, right? But um, all of these Bible names, um, what they're pointing to is that entire nations can be brought under God's judgment. Um, the shorthand that people use when they talk about this pattern where individuals come together and they sin in ways that a person can't do just by themselves um, is the word uh, systemic. Some of you have heard this word in the media right now. We're talking about a system of problems, a system of sins, systemic sin. And it's a theological term for this unique brand that manifests itself when people are working together in groups. Uh, One modern theologian, a guy by the name of John Barclay, who I think is one of the brightest out there right now, he had this to say about systemic sins and the crucifixion of Jesus. And the context here is that there's a Roman leader, a guy by the name of Varys, and he accidentally crucifies a Roman citizen. They mistake a Roman citizen for a slave, and they crucify him. And that is so against the rules of the Roman Empire that the whole Roman Empire is scandalized. Okay, And he says this, this is what John Barclay says about this incident. If the crucifixion of a Roman citizen is an outrage for which Cicero wants Varys humiliated and exiled, the crucifixion of the Lord of glory by the rulers of this age is the clearest possible indication that this age understands nothing of the divine system of value. The crucifixion is not just a temporary aberration in an otherwise well-functioning system. It is the clearest possible proof that the norms which pass for wisdom are completely unable to grasp what God is doing in the world. To read the crucifixion with the eyes of Paul is like reading the systems of justice in the old American South with the eyes of Harper Lee, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. It is to expose a whole system of evaluation, a matrix of norms and judgments that prides itself on the advanced state of civilization. It's all blind, corrupt, and barbaric, and utterly worthless in its judgment. What Barclay's trying to get at here is that the whole Roman Empire, and when it says, hey, the, the execution, the crucifixion of a Roman citizen is bad, but they don't recognize that they crucify the Lord of heaven on Good Friday in Jerusalem, and they have no qualms about that. John Barclay is saying, you can tell that the problem isn't just a couple of bad people. It's not just Pontius Pilate. It's not just the centurions. The entire ancient world is working at odds with the value system of God. It's systemic. And this question of systemic violence is playing out now in the context of our broader conversation we're having about racism and police brutality and riots across the United States. One police officer with a corrupt heart is bad enough. But then you get a second police officer who covers for his friend. And then you get a third police officer who does that together. And all of a sudden, you have a system of corruption that exists within an institution whose vision is to be good and just. And it's significantly harder to untangle when it's just one person. And it's the same thing on the other side, too. You get a bunch of people together to protest for a cause that they believe in, to advocate for justice, but then one person has violence in their heart and then a second person joins them and this peaceful protest becomes a riot. And all of a sudden, the community is forced to divert the tax dollars they want to improve their community to repair the burnt-out husk of a police station. 
And so when protesters with corrupt hearts and the police with corrupt hearts, they come together, they square off, um, we can see how the sins of individuals are not just added when they come together, they are multiplied. Things get exponentially worse when sinners come together to work towards a sinful goal. And that is what God is seeing in the Tower of Babel. The witness of Scripture is that personal corruption of our hearts can be magnified when we come together. And so when you look at John Lennon and Mark Zuckerberg and their sort of fervent but naive wishes, coming together, the Tower of Babel says, it will not be the thing that solves our problems. It may, in fact, be a thing that magnifies them. And so when we talk about in our own context, well, we just need to be unified. We just need to get together. We need to be one. Um, whatever that means, it's actually quite nebulous. I'm not sure what it means some of the time, but I can tell you now, the witness of Scripture says that unity in and of itself is not the thing that will save us. And so God does a gracious thing in our reading. He separates everyone with different languages. He creates chaos and breaks apart the work of this one unified people. The people of Babel are now unable to communicate outside their mutual babbling. There is no telling the problems humans could have caused for each other had they remained together. God's confusing of the language of the people is fundamentally an act of mercy. That's not the only act of mercy God has in store for his people, though. Years down the road, from this particular instance, years down the road, and after the era of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and after the exodus, after the conquest of Canaan, after the eras of judges, and after the eras of the kings and the prophets, 11 disciples will be sitting in a uh, house quietly awaiting marching orders. Their rabbi, they realize, after his death and resurrection, had become the savior. And he had ascended into heaven and said, hold tight here, because new marching orders were coming, and they're going to come through the work of the Holy Spirit. And on the holiday that the Jewish people called Pentecost, these 11 men and a number of others who are with them, um, they heard as they were praying the sound of, like a great wind. Have you ever heard a great wind? It doesn't sound like whoosh. It sounds like a freight train. It sounds like a tornado. And this great, um, this great wind comes and fills the house, and the sound is there, and all of a sudden, everyone's catching fire. Fire starts to, to fall on these people um, who are sitting there in fervent prayer, and it doesn't consume them like the burning bush of Moses. Instead, it irradiates them. They become um, something new, something different as they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak to each other in prophetic utterances. And they're talking about the goodness of God and how he saved Israel from the pharaohs and how he saved Israel again and again in the most beautiful and the most powerful way that God has saved his people is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what happens is, as the commotion moves outside and people are wondering what the heck is going on, they're not hearing these words in the language of Koine Greek, the, the sort of ancient equivalent of, of English that everyone speaks. They're not hearing it in that kind of language. They're hearing it in their native language. And in fact, in Acts chapter 2, you can read that there's a group of people there from all over the world. You can read in Acts chapter 2. You can read about how those people there are the, um, the Egyptians and the Asians and the Romans and the Libyans. And you can read about how they're, they're from Arabia and the plain of Shinar, uh, Mesopotamia, and Cappadocia. The, these nations that had their founding all the way back in Genesis chapter 10, they are all there present on the day of Pentecost. And all of a sudden, they are hearing the word of God 
they are hearing the good work of God, the saving work of God in their own language. The founding of the church in Acts chapter 2, friends, a story many of us are familiar with, we find that the curse of Babel is reversed. That at a time when God says, no, don't get together, things are going to be bad. That when Acts chapter 2 comes along and the church forms and people, the Holy Spirit falls on people, God says, now come together. For the first time in human history, there will be a group of humans that transcended every tribe, every nation, every race, and every tongue. And they would be coming together in a spiritual building that is higher and taller and mightier and closer to God than anything that the Babel Tower architects could have hoped to build. And when they gathered, the sin would not grow exponentially, but the grace and holiness of God, that would grow exponentially. There would be systemic good in a world otherwise marked by systemic evil. And even though the church as we know it now is not any stretch a perfect institution, it is a monument that stands in contrast to the systemic issues of the world around us. The gospel according to Genesis is that God has given us a redeemed version of this wicked tower. God has given us a sacred version of what our secular and pop cultures only wish they could have. Unlike the digital utopia of a Mark Zuckerberg that he hopes to create, we can be together in our bodies and be one without the mediation of technology. And unlike John Lennon's song, the peace that passes all understanding will only come through the the sacred. It turns out we actually need heaven and we actually need religion to accomplish this dream. Indeed, I wish I had time to go into this, but some of the greatest social movements in the history of the world, hospitals, organized charity for the poor, the end of chattel slavery, higher education, civil rights, all of these movements to end the systemic evils of their age, they had their origins in Christian worship and practice. And we are all better off in the world because of the systemic goodness of what the church can accomplish when it is on task and on mission. So when you see systemic evil at work in the world, justice denied for those who desperately need it, whole nations working to oppress a certain population, the persecution of our brother and sister Christians at the hand of other governments, corrupt governments living off of the work of the poor, all the things you read about in the news. When you see systemic evil at work in the world, remember that the Tower of Babel, the original systemic evil, um, is a monument to what God will create eventually through his church. None of this comes as a surprise to God. None of this systemic evil does. And when it feels impossible to do anything about the injustices of our world, and the problems are too big for you to handle, remember Jesus' death and resurrection. Because if death can be conquered, then Jesus can one day soon fix the evils of this world. As tough as it is, as tough as it is, to look at the injustices of the world and say, these things are out of my power to fix. If God can fix the problem of death that plagues us all, he will one day fix everything else, including the sins in your own heart and the systemic evils that you notice. In Jesus' name we pray. Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.